you know, there's something about our phones that is irresistible. And there are lots of other irresistible things in our lives. Some of them are good things, some of them are bad things, but we all have those things that we can't not engage with. It might be your phone, it might be a certain food, it might be certain people. Certain things are just irresistible. And this morning we're starting a new series, and the big idea is this, that the church, that the people of God in the world, we are meant to be an irresistible community. We are meant to be the kind of people, and this is supposed to be the kind of place that the rest of the world can't get enough of. We are supposed to be the kind of people and the kind of place that that if we were to suddenly, St. Mark were to suddenly disappear out of Houston, that even our unbelieving friends and neighbors would miss us terribly. Because we have lived lives of blessing and influence, generosity, sacrifice, and joy. And because we have built a community where anybody and everybody can come in the door and be warmly welcomed, even if they don't know what's going on. We're called to be the kind of place that is irresistible. The rest of the world can't get enough of whatever it is that's going on inside of you and inside of this place, stirred up by Jesus. And I'm not just making that up out of my own heart and mind as a pastor who longs for this to be a place of irresistible influence. I get that from the scriptures. In particular, I think of of the early chapters of the book of Acts, which, which paints a picture of the earliest days of the Christian church. And in Acts chapter 2, round about verses 46 through 47, Luke, who wrote the book of Acts, he, he paints this really beautiful picture of what was happening in those early days as the message of the finished, forgiving work of Jesus Christ was spreading throughout the known world. This is how he describes it. Acts chapter 2, he says this, Day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God. And here's the key phrase, having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. In other words, the people who had embraced the message of the resurrected Jesus, they not only got along with each other, but the rest of the world who maybe hadn't heard yet the message of Jesus or who had rejected the message of Jesus still thought favorably of the people of Jesus. They said, I don't know what they believe or I don't believe what they believe, but I like the people who believe because of what they bring into this world. And we are intrigued by them. We're drawn to them. And it says that God added to the number of Christians day by day, and they grew. That is an irresistible church. Now, here's the thing that I know. That is not an apt description of the church in America today. That is not an apt description of the church in the West in general. I've been alive for for 39 years, and for all 39 of my years and for many years prior to my birth, the church in America has numerically been in decline, rapid decline. And there are lots of factors and lots of reasons that go into that, uh, one of which is the fact that we, we are in a world where the world itself is changing and the culture around the American church is changing rapidly and drastically. But here's what I also know. At the same time that that Christianity is in decline in the Western world, in particular in the United States, it's growing rapidly in other places. It's growing rapidly in China, in India, and in Africa, places where there is far more cultural opposition to the growth of Christianity than we have ever, 
ever experienced here in the United States. So it can't simply be that the world around the American church has changed, but something within the American church has changed as well. And what I would argue to you is this, that the church in some sense has lost touch with its irresistibility. Has in some sense lost touch with that thing about following Jesus and holding the message of the gospel in your hands and in your hearts that so changes you and, and changes the group that forms around you called the church that the rest of the world can't help but look and listen and be intrigued and be drawn close. We've lost our irresistibility that comes with following Jesus. So much so that the opinion of outsiders towards us is not all that favorable. And we have to own that. There are many who agree with Mahatma Gandhi who say things like this. I like your Christ, but I do not like your Christians. Your Christians are so unlike your Christ. But what if we... At St. Mark, insofar as it depends on us in our little world and our little spheres of influence as a church, but also as individuals, what if we change that? What would it take for us to recover our irresistibility as followers of Jesus individually, but also corporately? Because I believe that we can. I know that we must. What would it require of us to once again be an irresistible church? The kind of church where if we disappeared, even the outsiders and the unbelievers would say, man, I'm sad that they're gone. That's what we're going to wrestle with in this series. We're going to wrestle with that question as a church, but it begins with us wrestling with this. The kind of lives we live when we're scattered individually and how we're engaging the world on our own and the kind of community we create when we are gathered together in worship. It begins by us reflecting on our scattered lives and how we individually engage the world. Are we living irresistibly on our own as followers of Jesus? And then the kind of community we create when we gather together like this. So let's start with engaging the world, that question. Uh, one of my friends, uh, Miriam, happens to be one of the most accomplished, funny, uh, and talented people I've ever met. And when I first met Miriam, I didn't know what she did for a living. In fact, for a long time, as we started our friendship, I didn't know what she did for a living. Not that she held, she, she, she held that back from me, but I just never really asked. Until one day, she shared with me. She said, Matt, I'm a diplomat. Uh, she worked at the United Nations, representing her country, her home country of Suriname. And uh, I was kind of jaw-dropped. I wasn't surprised because she was just this... Uh, very capable and uh, really powerful presence. I wasn't surprised that she was sent on behalf of her country to represent it well. But I was, I'd never really met a diplomat before, let alone have a friend who was a UN diplomat. And so I asked her, I said, I said Miriam, are all the things they say about diplomats true? Like, like, like for example, um, rumor is you don't have to pay any sales tax. And rumor has it that, that you'll never get a parking ticket or a speeding ticket in the city. And also, if, if you commit a crime, you get to claim diplomatic immunity. Is that true? And she leaned into me and she said, Matt, I can tell you, but I'd have to kill you. <laughs> I told you she was funny. Did you know that you are a representative as well? You are an ambassador of another nation, at least if you're here as a follower of Jesus. 
by being baptized into his name, filled with forgiveness and covered in grace and empowered by his spirit, the way God talks about you is that you, you live here in this world, but you belong to his kingdom that is coming into the world. And that so long as you are walking around in flesh and blood here, you are a representative and ambassador of, of his kingdom into this world. In fact, the Apostle Paul talks about it like this in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. He says, we are ambassadors for Christ. We who are here as followers. We are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal to the world through us. God is making his best pitch to the world through you and me. I know, right? But he is. Which means we have to wrestle with this question. Um, how will we represent him? I mean, being an ambassador from the kingdom of heaven comes with certain perks. We get to walk around knowing that we're drenched in grace, filled with his spirit. Our future is secure. We, we get a certain amount of diplomatic immunity. Like, we know that we are forgiven forever, for always. doesn't mean we get to be jerks, but we are forgiven. But that privilege also comes with a responsibility, The responsibility of wrestling with the question, how will I represent this other kingdom? What kind of ambassador will I be in my individual life? What kind of ambassador will I be as I'm driving down I-10? What kind of ambassador will I be in my carpool? What kind of ambassador will I be at the kids' soccer game while I'm sitting on the sideline? What kind of ambassador will I be around the break room table with my kids around the dinner table or while I'm texting online and getting super angry about something that really doesn't matter? What kind of representative will I be out as I engage the world. You must wrestle with that. Now, there are three postures you can take as an ambassador representative to the rest of the world, and only one of which I would say is irresistible to the world. You can be a consumer of the world, a contrarian in the world, or a contributor to the good of the world. A consumer is, quite honestly, the posture most of us take, whether we're a follower of Jesus or not. We get so enamored with and infatuated with the world that we live in. And the world we live in is really, really, really good. Don't get me wrong. But we get so infatuated with the world that we live in that we, we start to become exactly like the world we live in. We love exactly what it likes. We hate exactly what it hates. We do exactly what it does. We consume everything that it is, and we become a product of it, even though we're saved by the maker of all of it. And there's a real downside to being a consumer from a Christian perspective. You lose your way and you lose your witness. You lose your way because in this lovely world, not everything that the world loves is lovely to God. And so if we just co-opt everybody else's sensibilities, we're going to get caught up in things that are unhelpful at best and unhealthy at worst. But not only do we lose our way, we lose our witness. Because when we become just like everybody else, the rest of the world looks at us and they see no difference in us from them. And so they make the understandable assumption that following Jesus makes no difference at all. See what I'm saying? Well, if you follow him, but you're no different than me, then what difference does following him make? That's the conclusion that they draw. It's not very irresistible. Now, on the opposite end of the spectrum, there are those who live their whole lives as a Christian as a contrarian to the world. The only thing that these people see are the things that are broken, bad, and wrong in the world, and they spend most of their time pointing them out. This offends my God, and it bothers me. Contrarians to the world tend to pull back from the world, pull back from the culture, and they create their own little worlds filled with people who are just like them and their own little subculture that only ever talks about Jesus. 
And they only emerge from that little world and that little subculture to scream about something horrible or shake their fist at people that they don't like. And then they understandably get labeled as judgmental jerks. Because I only ever hear from you when you're mad at me, and I also see all that's wrong in you. That's not very irresistible either. The better way is this. Followers of Jesus are called to be contributors to the world, to the good and the flourishing of the world. We're called to be people who are receiving the gifts of God, grace, mercy, love, peace. We're connected to Christ and we're receiving those things personally. And then we see it as our task as ambassadors to bring the goods of our home, heaven, and the kingdom of God into the world for the betterment and the flourishing of others. Because we know the things that God is about. Does God hate sin? Yes. Yes. But, but does God love mercy and justice and peace and beauty? Yes, he does. And our job is to take the things that God loves and bring them into a world that doesn't always. And, and we are to try and live as the answer to Jesus' own prayer. When he gave us the Lord's Prayer, what's the first part? Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. In Houston, as it is in heaven. That's supposed to be our prayer. And guess who brings it to Houston? You do. Your task is to say, how can I bring the goodness of God to bear in my little parts of the world for the good of everybody else? This is the question you should be wrestling with. We can put it on the screen. How might I live out the things of God for the good of all? How might we live out the things of God for the good of all? In my carpool, how can I live out the things of God, mercy, hope, love, and peace for the good of all? On the sideline, I'm a kid's soccer practice. How can I live out the the things of God, mercy, love, peace, joy for the good of all? Around the break room, around the dining room table, as I'm driving down the street, as I'm posting online, how can I bring out the things of God for the good of all? That is your task. That's what it means to be a contributor for the good of our neighbors. Which of those three best describes you? Gut check time. Are you just a consumer? There's no difference between you and the rest of the world? Are you a contrarian, shaking your fist at everything that's wrong in the world? Or do you try to be a contributor, bringing the things of heaven into your world in some small way? People who have wrestled with that question substantively have done some of the most amazing work in this world. It is women and men wrestling with that question. How might I bring the things of God into this world for the good of all? Who, who founded the vast majority of Ivy League schools. Nine out of ten Ivy League schools in this country were founded by Christian men and women who said, pursuit of knowledge brings glory to God and blessing to others. Did you know that? That when you walk into the campus of Columbia University, you're greeted with Latin letters that, say to glor- that proclaim the glory of God? Did you know that? That it is men and women wrestling with that question who championed the care of the orphans and the forgotten and established the modern adoption system. Did you know that? That it's men and women wrestling with that question who who make up the, the vast majority, the vast number of people in the Christian faith who, according to the New York Times, outgive every other group when it comes to alleviating suffering and poverty in this world. Christians lead the way. That's a quote from the New York Times. It is men and women wrestling with this question. Men like... Beethoven, men like Michelangelo, people like Bono, (laughs) wrestling with that question, who have brought some of the most enduring and impactful art into our world. 
That's the question we're to ask. So which are you? Consumer, contrarian, or contributor? Bringing heaven to Houston. Now, now I would argue to you that, that when you really wrestle with that, it does not lead to a perfect life, not, not by a long shot, but it leads to an alluring life, an intriguing life, an interesting life, one where Peter says deep in the New Testament, people will ask the question about the hope that you have because you're not being contrary to everybody. You're not just like everybody. You bring a little bit of salt and light and heaven to everybody in some small way. Someone will want to look deeper. Someone will want to see what you see, have what you have, and they might just join you here. And that's how we start to talk about gathered worship. I hope that people around you see something in you that draws them here to this place. That as you engage the world as an individual, you're such a contributor of beauty, love, and joy that they can't help but want to learn more. And so they come here chasing after you and what you have. Now, the problem with, with many American churches is that even though people come to American Christian churches in an effort to find God, many American churches have become a horrible place to actually encounter him. Why do you think Jesus was so mad in the temple? He, it's not like he just watched that show on Netflix about cleaning out clutter and he was on a trip and he's just flipping over tables. You know what show I'm talking about, right? The condo show? Yeah. No. Why was Jesus mad in the temple? But think about what the temple was. The temple was the center of religious and spiritual life for the Jewish people. In the middle of the temple was where the presence and the promises of God were. And so all of the people in the in crowd would gather there. All the saved, believing Jewish people would gather there. But there was this thing called the courts around the inner sanctum of the temple. And the temple courts were for everybody else. The temple courts were there so that non-believing people, those who were outside of the in crowd, could get as close as possible, so close that they could see what was happening, they could hear the singing, they could, they could smell the sacrifices, they could see the look on people's faces, they could get intrigued by it, get really, really close to it, and if the spirit so moved, they might even believe it and become part of it. But what had God's people done? They had cluttered it and pushed them out of it. They'd filled the temple courts with the selling of spiritual accessories. So much so that no outsider could come and get close and see and hear about this God that they worshipped. And even if they did get close, they'd see all the selling of all the stuff that really doesn't matter and it would turn them off. And so they would walk away. And so Jesus walks in and he's flipping tables and he's kicking things over and he says, my house, the temple is mine, Jesus says, is supposed to be a house of prayer for who? All nations everybody. You see, there are three postures we can have when it comes to our gathered life. We can say that our life together in worship is all about me, the person who's saved, or it's all about them, the person who's not yet connected to Jesus, or it's all about us together. And only one of those postures is irresistible. You see, churches that believe that the, the gathered worship is just about them, the people who already know and already believe, they tend to shape everything in the Sunday experience around the sensibilities and peculiarities and proclivities of those who already believe. And they make it really hard for outsiders to come close and to see and to smell and to witness everything that happens here. We, we tend to clutter it up as if coming to church isn't weird enough already if you're not a believer. And it's really hard to come to church in general, even the most hospitable church if you're not a believer. Because I don't know if you know this, but we're a particularly strange group of people, all of us as Christians, on purpose, by God's design. 
We have our own language. Did you know that? Who here uses the word narthex outside of this place? (laughs) Nobody. We do things like this to remember our baptism. Anybody anybody ever seen anyone other than a Catholic priest do that? We, We gather together and we sing out loud together. Where does that happen other than the shower or the car or a karaoke bar? We pass around a plate and we say, everybody should put some money in. And then when our babies are born, we bring them up front and we dunk them in water. And then we invite everybody up to the front to drink some blood and eat some flesh. We do that. It, it is beautifully otherworldly, but to the outsider, it is not just otherworldly, but it was weird and strange. And the church that's all about me does nothing to help decipher that for other people. Nothing. They put all the onus and all the expectation on the outsider to say, if you want to come be a part of what we, what we do here, come in, but figure it out. Navigate our weirdness, our strangeness, our uniqueness, our rites and rituals, and if you really want it, you'll stick around and you'll do it. And then we get surprised when they walk out and leave and say they're cold and distant and kind of crazy. Now, churches tend to overcompensate against that, and they say, well, church isn't just about me, the saved person. Maybe church is all about the lost person. That's all it's for. And then what they tend to do is they take away all the things that scripture and tradition say must be here. Take away all the things like the celebration of the sacraments, the reading of the scripture, the the recitation of the creeds, the forgiveness of sins. These are These are peculiar but necessary, beautiful kingdom of heaven coming down to earth things. And what some churches do is they jettison all those things and say, well, none of that makes sense to the outsider, so let's get rid of it. And they end up reinventing church completely, and it becomes something totally different that is arguably not even Christian worship. And what happens is that people who are connected to Jesus sometimes walk out saying, I just... just, don't feel engaged with him. I'm not growing. And those who really connect with it end up getting stymied in their growth. They hit a ceiling in their growth because heaven in all of its beautiful weirdness is not coming into that worship service at all. So there's a better way. A more irresistible way. The way is for the church to say, in step with the heart of Jesus that flips some tables, the way is for the church to say, you know what, it's about me coming in and receiving the gifts of God and being with God's people, but it's also about them. It's about all of us. And what that church does is it embraces all the otherworldly, beautiful weirdness of heaven coming down to earth in Christian worship and in Christian community, but it does so in a way that says, I'm going to go out of my way to make sure that the temple courts are clear, so to speak. That it is as easy as possible for the outsider to come and understand, engage, And if the Spirit so moves, believe. And they try to live in that tension of meeting the needs of those who are the people of God, worshiping faithfully, historically, God himself, but also doing it in a way that is understandable and approachable to the outsider so that they can come and see. Churches that say it's about us are wrestling with this question. Are we making it easy for our neighbors to attend, engage, and to understand? Are we making it easy for our neighbors to attend, to engage, and to understand? Are we? Constantly wrestling with that. And I'm going to be straightforward with you. If you call St. Mark your church home, in 2019, we're entering into a season where we are wrestling with this question on a very, very deep level. And as a result, in the coming months, there's going to be changes that we make. There's going to be lots of things that stay the same, but there's going to be lots of things that perhaps change. Not perhaps, it's going to be straightforward, that will change. But it's all flowing from, from this question 
and trying to be faithful, that it's not about me, it's not just about them, it's about us together and the cleared out courts so that we can all be here to witness and see and receive the work of God. We're wrestling with that question. Because that's what we're called to. And I think that's irresistible. When you bring the beauty of God so close to your neighbor, they can see it, they can sense it, they can touch, they can taste it. And even though it's weird and otherworldly, they feel warmly welcomed and wanted and you've taken out everything that's unnecessary so that they can engage with the God that they need to know and so can you. That is irresistible because it's an act of love. You know, churches ultimately that, that stray from their irresistibility in following Jesus, ultimately it's because individuals and whole communities stray a bit in their own lives from the work of Jesus. Not that we're somehow outside of his grace, but we, we lose focus on the gift of grace that we ourselves have received. And, and so if you, if you find yourself wrestling with with being a contributor to this broken world rather than a contrarian or just a consumer of it, or you find yourself wrestling with church being also about somebody other than you, my encouragement to you is to join me in this regular process in your own heart and mind of just journeying back to Jesus and remembering all that he's done for you. And in your prayers and your study of scripture, what you'll find is, is Jesus saying this to you over and over again. What he says to his people is, the only reason you get to be in the temple, so to speak, is because I cleared the courts for you. I, I cleared the metaphorical, spiritual courts of, of your sinfulness, of your brokenness, of, of your death and your dying, of all the things that get in the way and make you afraid and make you far from God. I cleared it all the way through my life and my death and my resurrection. I promised I poured my promises of mercy upon you and I cleared the path so now you have direct access to God the Father and you know that you're loved by him, wanted by him, saved by him, belonged to him. I've cleared the courts for you. And just sit with that, wrestle with that. Think of all that he's pushed out of the way for you so that you can enjoy the gift of grace and watch as you sit in that and soak in that if it doesn't begin to turn and change your heart back to the truth that you are free to give a gift to the world and engage the world as a contributor because of the grace that you've given, you've been given. And that you are a part of a community that exists not just for you, but so that other people can enjoy the things that are enjoyed by you. Sitting with Jesus turns our hearts back towards those things. So many churches have lost their irresistibility. So many individuals, as they engage the world, have lost their irresistibility. But that does not have to be you. It does not have to be us. I imagine us as a church living so lovingly and generously, so delightfully differently that if we were to disappear suddenly from the map, even our unbelieving friends and neighbors would say, man, I didn't believe what they believed, but I am so sad that they are gone because of all the beauty they brought to me and how they went out of their way when I did show up to welcome me, have things make sense to me, and get me as close as they thought they could to the God that they said made me. I'll close with this picture. It's from a pastor named Scott Sauls who's done a good bit of writing on this subject. He says this, 
What would it look like for Christians to become the first place people go to for comfort when a life-changing diagnosis comes? And again, we're talking about unbelievers here. What would it look like for Christians and the Christian church to be the first place outsiders go to when anxiety and depression hit, when a child goes astray, when a spouse files for divorce, or when the breadwinner loses her job? What would it look like for a woman with a crisis pregnancy who previously is disconnected from the church to see her local church, not the local clinic, as her trustworthy source for love, non-judgment, practical support, wise counsel, and much-needed encouragement? What would it look like for the local church to become the most diverse and welcoming rather than the most homogenous and inhospitable community on earth? What would it look like for Christians to become not only the best kind of friends, but for you to be known as the best kind of enemy, returning insults with kindness and persecution with prayers? What would it look like if we, St. Mark, were a church that your friends and your neighbors simply couldn't live without. More on that next week. Let's pray.